Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. I'm here today with Besma Momini, who is a professor at the University of Waterloo and a fellow at uh, Brookings Doha. And uh, Besma is the author of a recent book called Arab Dawn, Arab Youth and the Demographic Dividend They Will Bring. Uh, Besma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let, let's talk about uh, the Arab Dawn and uh, just tell us a little bit about what, what were you doing in the book and what do you think the major contributions of the book are? Well, the book was sort of an intellectual exercise to try and think about uh, not only what might be the half-glass-full argument in what is the Middle East, but more than anything to... Um, humanize the region because I think so much of our time as uh, political scientists in our effort to especially explain so much of the geopolitical situation, um, we do often, I think, unfortunately and an unintended consequences dehumanize the region. And one of the things that I wanted to, to do was to bring the voices of a generation that I think for all uh, the structural impediments against them uh, are amazingly resilient and continue to show evidence of being far more entrepreneurial, far more progressive, cosmopolitan, uh, politically astute, despite the fact that they're up against a system that is really working against all of those things. Uh, and some of what they've been able to achieve and accomplish um, has been because of good investment, uh, state investment education, which I think really is the spark of a generation that is being transformed from within. There's a socio-cultural revolution happening, even though one could argue the political revolution has failed. Uh, the people fundamentally think differently than previous generations. And it's happened quite quickly, right? I mean, in, in world historical terms, just the spread of literacy and the spread of internet competence and all these things that you're talking about, it's happened quite fast. Absolutely. And, and if you look at uh, where the... Arab region was even in 2000 compared to 2010. Uh, there's a great increase, uh, quite remarkable. And again, a lot of that is, you know, unintended consequence of neoliberalism and investing in some of the attempts to meet global development indicators, including the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. All these governments scurrying to build universities, educate their population, so they don't let rank low on the on the indices. But the the again, the benefit of that has been a new sophisticated young group of people who really do have a lot of uh, very, I think, uh, for lack of a better term, and I've been really pushed on this, you know, liberal uh, Western kinds of values, uh, things that I think are, are quite important, whether it's believing in meritocracy, which is completely against the notion of corruption and nepotism, uh, believing in uh, seeking out individual prosperity and uh, making it on your own, which goes against that whole rentier state and that paternalistic model that the economic system was so dependent on. Um, and similarly, this idea that somehow Islam is, uh, which I think many governments had been painting it, uh, whether that, you know, particularly in the Levant and outside the Gulf, I have to be clear about that, that somehow this was an, you know, not being a modern citizen. And yet they've resiliently put this hybrid culture together where they're both East and Western. And I think they no longer fit in the sort of classical, you know, choose between being an Islamist and, you know, that moderate liberal. Um, they really know how to meld the two because they live uh, in, in, as in your own book, looked at how their online activities have always made them exposed to ideas that 
many of these governments and regimes could not stop uh, the penetration of. And what's interesting is that you're not just talking about this very thin slice of, uh, of activists, but of, of a much broader generation of people who, they might not be politically active, but they're living in this new type of world, this new type of space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things I was, I was looking for variation, and yet I found what's interesting is a lot of cross-country similarity. And even socioeconomically, I thought I would hear different stories from the rural side than in the urban areas. And uh, I didn't. I often heard the same frustrations. Um, even, ironically, sometimes what you would think is upper middle class seem to have the same frustrations that rural people have about getting ahead and not being um, respected or acknowledged for their individual attributes and their achievements and wanting to break away from that terrible system of nepotism and corruption. And I think that's part of, you know, the socioeconomic crunch has hit young people, you know, drastically. We know that, you know, the, av the average unemployment rate is much higher for young people than it is for, for older people. And so there's a generational problem. It's not just the typical way we looked at the Middle East previously, which was always through that class or rural urban dimension. Now, when you started this book, uh, we were still kind of in that hopeful phase of the Arab Spring where it looked like this was the, the, the cutting edge of uh, fairly rapid change. Now, of course, everything is you know, much, much worse, and you have the failed transitions, the wars, the failed states. H how do you see these youth that you're focused upon responding to those setbacks and frustrations? Are, are, are they giving up on some of those ideas that you found back in 2011, 2012? Are they clinging to their ideals? What, what, how would you generally characterize the current thinking compared to, say, five years ago? Well, it's interesting because at one point I thought that maybe I wrote this book two to three years too late. Um, and so every time I would go back to the region thinking that, oh, no, did I just write a book that was so passé? I'd constantly meet young people who reaffirmed all of the same findings I found in 2012, 2013, and throughout. And even most recently, a few months ago, uh, you know, early 2016, having the opportunity to visit the region again, the region or the young people of the region have changed. They've really changed. You know, there's this, uh, and, and it's controversial, of course, what to call it, uprising, spring, awakening, I use the word dawn. I mean, I think you could just add a whole series of them, winter, you know, the Thermidor. I mean, we all, yeah. there's so many of these acronyms, right? But what I think is quite unique is that if you talk to these young people and the value surveys and the surveys generally that keep coming out of the region continue to affirm it in that they're not going to put up with the past. I, I can't speak for, I don't have the crystal ball of what that will mean politically. I can just say that socioculturally they've changed. And, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle again. And the, the reality is it's incumbent on governments now to figure out what they're going to do, if they're going to meet and really address the challenges of these youth and do something productive with it or follow the path of so many of these dictators who have continued to repress it. So I'm sure you've seen there's this, um, uh, I believe, UAE-based um, public relations firm that does this annual Arab youth survey. And for five years running, they found the UAE uh, is considered by this youth demographic as the most desirable place to live. And I've seen similar results in, in uh, surveys done by Zogby and by a number of others. Um, if you look at the UAE, how, how would you explain the appeal? Is it the economic opportunity? Is it they just want to be rich? I mean, what, what is it that makes this? Yeah. Or do you think that it's wrong? 
I think it's absolutely right, and I continue to see it throughout the region. And part of it is, and this is something hard for us to sort of understand, well, not so much understand, but uh, you know, for those of us who are hungry to see democracy, we think that should be the first priority. But I would say, and it's not to say that they want the opposite of that, they very much want democracy, it always ranks high. But if you have to order them, it often is economic opportunity first. You know, democracy and political openings can sometimes come a little later if the economic opportunity presents itself. And in some way, the UAE offers that. It offers them a chance to be successful economically. They still want to live in an Arab and Muslim culture, especially those who are, you know, practicing, um, and not all Arabs are Muslim, uh, just to qualify. But that's really interesting that they still want to live in relatively Arabized society. And I think that's, um, that says a lot about how they do want a very Eastern-Western culture. And if I think you go to the UAE, one of the things I can say that does stand out is they've been able to blend. You know, you can live a very cosmopolitan lifestyle and, and, and enjoy all the, the benefits of Westernism, but also if you want to sort of go back to one's roots of Arabness and if you are Muslim and Islamic identity, it offers that as well. And so that really says a lot about where this youth culture is going. So let's talk about kind of the, the youth culture in general and, and, and these youth attitudes, because one of, one of the counter arguments would be that, you know, every generation, you know, you have, you know, these, you know, the, the young generation, they're full of hope and idealism and all these things, but then they get older, they have kids, mortgages, and they become old people. And, you know, so what I was really thinking about reading your book was the stuff that I used to read about Iran back in the 1990s. And, you know, you have this generation, the student movement and, uh, you know, back with Khatami and, you know, 67 percent voting for this and everything. And at the time, a lot of us, uh, including me, thought something very similar, that there's just no going back, right? This is a fundamentally new Iran. And then within a few years, you're, you have Ahmadinejad, you have the rise of the IRGC. And so it's not to say that they didn't amount to anything, but the change certainly didn't happen in as linear a fashion as, as many of us thought it would. Is that kind of how you would read where the Arab youth are today? Or do you think that these new things that you're describing will produce something different, like they'll be able to avoid those mistakes or dead ends. How do you compare where we are now to some of those earlier examples? That's a great point, and it's true. I mean, of course, one is more liberal in, in one's youth, regardless of where you're on the spectrum. You know, we sort of become more conservative with life experience. I think that's anyone who's over 40 knows that. Um, that's, that's a Neither reality. of us would know anything no, about that, no, of no, course. No, no, not at all. Of course not. <laughs> um, but what I think here is that what's different and unique about the Arab world is if you look at the demographic pyramid, it is so, so bottom heavy. And bottom heavy in that spectrum of the you know 18 to 24. And it's true that it's very easy to ignore young people. I mean, it's really hard to take the smartest of smartest 20-year-olds, you know, seriously in the, in the public realm. But that 20-year-old becomes 35, they become a change maker in their society. And if you look at the demographic of the Arab world, what's so interesting is that this, we know they're the majority of the population, but what's going to happen to, again, that liberal-minded group who's seen the failures of how things have been governed and done in the past when they become the technocrats, the decision makers, the policy makers, the influencers of their society. And I think what makes it different in some respect is that this group is extremely wide on the demographic pyramid scale. And that's what I think is really interesting. But you know, also, I mean, since you're bringing in the historical perspective, 
even when we look at uh, you know global history, I mean Latin America, as a graduate student of the 1980s and, and early 1990s, Latin America was the only interesting place to study. For many of us going into grad school at that time, political scientists, the Middle East was a little boring, as so many of us said, right? And that's because I think through history, regions go through change, but somehow we have this snapshot of what's going on today and think this is the moment where the Middle East will be in turmoil forever. My father, who was a student of history, studied, you know, Europe, because Europe was the only place that was interesting in the 1950s. And I think that, you know, hopefully, um, we will pass this phase as well. And I think that there's an important lesson to be made about transitions do come, and the Middle East is not, you know, uh, um, in a way, uh, going to be st stuck in this perpetual f phase of violence uh, just by virtue of it being the Middle East. I really fundamentally disagree with that notion that's so often perpetuated in some circles. But what about the effects of that violence on this generation? Um, you know, if you look at the sheer number of refugees and people who've been not driven out of school or seen their families ripped apart, um, and this is everything from Syria and Yemen to places like Egypt where, you know, political prisoners and people seeing, you know, their family members or people they respect thrown into prison. There seems like there's an awful lot of trauma. Um, couldn't that push a lot of these young people away from kind of hopeful liberalism towards something darker? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a great risk, uh, without a doubt. Um, but also, I think even in terms of when we talk about uh, what has been classically thought of as brain drain, this idea of an exodus of people, be it in the worst case scenarios of refugees and dislocation and, and the rest, oftentimes I think what we fail to recognize that, you know, the refugees of the 1950s have very different experiences than refugees of 2016. And part of this is, you know, in, and I don't want to overly sound like a, a typical neoliberal kind of argument, but it's important to point out, you know, the fact that we have information communication technology the fact that we have a, a global marketplace that needs transnational workers and transnational expertise, you know, I fundamentally no longer see things in terms of brain drain. It's called brain circularity, which is this idea that, you know, even as we see, you know, in my country, in Canada, you know, absorbing 25,000 Syrian refugees, those 25 Syrian refugees, I fundamentally believe, and I have met many of them, will be building their societies again and will be contributing back to the Arab world. And some of this circularity has been very beneficial, whether we're looking at, for example, the way that the Saudis have sent students abroad in enormous numbers, um, whether we look at uh, some of the immigration to Europe, I think that we've only seen a very small segment of that uh, Arab diaspora experience. There's also a very interesting side of the Arab diaspora experience, which, was, which we can see, for example, in Tunisian diaspora, which put pressure on Tunisia home politics to actually liberalize and to be more transparent. And I think that's a dimension, for example, that we haven't examined, which was what is the Arab transnational diaspora influence on Arab politics mm -hmm. in the Middle East and North Africa? Well, great. This, I, I think what's great about your book is that it does help get us away from just the headlines of the immediate <clears throat> political you know, political conflicts and the like, looking at these longer trends and how they might be reshaping society. So, so thanks for thanks for joining the podcast to talk about this. Um, you've been listening to the Poem Apps podcast with Bessma Molinay, uh, talking about her new book, Arab Dawn. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you.